swagger, okay? Regardless of what happens out there, doesn't matter. Keep your swagger. Everybody, welcome to Five Hole Fantasy Hockey. I'm your host today, TJ Branson. Today, I have a trio of interviews for you guys. I'm talking to George Richards about the Florida Panthers. I'm talking to Arpon Basu about the Montreal Canadiens. And I'm talking to Lance Lazowski about the Buffalo Sabres. So gear up because we got a trio of interviews for you guys. And it's going to be a lot of fun. I had a good time talking to these guys. And I'm glad that they were able to give me a little bit of their time. So I hope you guys enjoy listening to them as well. I hope they're insightful. Let me know what you guys think at FHF Hockey if you got any feedback whatsoever. So let's get to the interviews. We're going to start off with George. Oh, there you are. What's up? Hey, not much, man. I'm first time user for Zoom, so yeah, I had I had to re-download it. It still had all my athletic stuff in it, so that was all set up through them. So yeah, uh, that was a rough spot, man. I don't. Yeah, know. weird. Yeah, definitely. But I see you have got the Panthers press box working right now, and uh, yeah, we'll see how that goes. So is that something you set up on your own here? Yeah, yeah, I did it uh, yesterday. Right on. Yeah. Everybody listening, we are joined with George Richards. You guys can find him on Twitter at George Richards, covering the Florida Panthers for the Panthers Press Box, fresh and crispy. Let's start with the elephant in the room. And I want to say that is Sergei Bobrovsky. There's there's so much that I want to ask about what happened this season, but I think that it, that's the perfect question. What happened this season? Uh, with Sergei, I, I think there was just kind of a perfect storm. I mean, just... All the, you know, the pressure of of that huge deal that he signed, you know, the whole summer leading into it, like, you know, he's the guy they're targeting and put him in a new situation. I mean, he played, what, six, seven seasons in Columbus, a very defensive-minded team, you know, the the, the Blue Jackets, who I covered for a season, uh, not the most offensively oriented team in the league. And then you come to the Panthers, who just by their nature, a little freewheeling, right? And didn't really play a whole lot of solid defense in front of him. And I think it was just a real, real big adjustment period for him, both in in, off the ice and and most definitely on the ice because he looked like a fish out of water. And I'm not even saying that in a bad way. I mean, he was just (laughs) everywhere and he kept them in so many games. In some of his best games, he gave up four goals. You know, and you you would watch that game throughout the game. Said to yourself, "Wow, Sergey Bobrovsky has saved the Panthers time and again." But statistically, it looked terrible. We talked about that after games, and and you kind of shrug it off. But he had a lot of those kind of games where he looked like a Vezina winner, but the statistics were were were, were not very good. Yeah, um, and he had some games where he wasn't very good. You know, to his credit, I, I think he's mentioned. What I just mentioned a few times, not many times, most of the times he did take it on himself. He's one of those guys that says, you know, the numbers are what they are. I have to eat them. You know, the, he's got a 900 save percentage and, and what, a 3.3 goals against something That's of that not, is not pretty. Yeah, they're not pretty numbers. But if you'd watch the Panthers on a daily basis, and I know a lot of people do not, <laughs> um, but, but, but I'm there at every game. 
Um, and I see what's what's going on in front of him. Uh, only until the last couple games before the for, before the hiatus, in which he wasn't even on the ice, they they did not play a consistent defensive game. So do you think there's hope for next year? I'd imagine that somebody of his caliber can can overcome the odds or maybe even the defensive system changes to to shelter him a bit more. Yeah, I think so. And I think if they get the opportunity to play, which, you know, we all are, you know, figuring that they will, um, you know, maybe things will be a little different. It looked like the Panthers had figured it out defensively. They, they kind of gave up some offense to play a little defense in those final three games with Chris Drieger in, in net and looked like a, a different team and, and definitely a team that we did not see in front of, of Sergey. So, yeah, I, I think he'll be fine. I mean, the guy's a two-time Vesna winner. We saw what, he's, what he did in, in Columbus where he took that team and put him on his back. But let's give credit to the way Columbus played in front of him as well. They limited his chances to where Florida really didn't. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of Corpusalo and Merzlikens are kind of, you know, becoming stars of their own. And I think it just, like you said, it kind of sheds light on the defensive system that they have in play there. Everybody's bought in, you know, in Columbus. I mean, yeah. you have to buy into that system or you're not going to play. And John Tortorella, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, pretty clear time and again. And in Florida, he just had Joel Quinville a lot of times scratch his head like, geez, you know, how do I get through to these guys? And like I said, the last couple games, it looked like they did. They knew their season was on the line and they played like it. And we just hadn't seen that kind of buy-in for much of the year. So let's talk about the free agent situation that's going to be facing Florida this this summer or fall or whenever it actually happens. So the UFAs are Mike Hoffman, Evgeny Dadnov, Eric Hola, Brian Boyle, Mark Pissick, RFAs, Dominic Toninato, Alexi Sorella, Lucas Walmart, Mackenzie Wieger, Josh Brown. Not all these names are like top round picks in any fantasy league out there, but guys like Hoffman, Dadnov, and Halla are definitely, they warrant some attention in most fantasy circles. So where do you kind of stand? Is it almost a foregone conclusion that one or more could be gone? Uh, what sense do you get there? Uh, well, I think before this whole thing started with the break in the season, I think we definitely thought that. I, I don't know what the market is going to look like whenever July 1 is going to be. <laughs> I mean, we don't. we just don't know what the market's going to look like. We don't know what teams are going to be out there trying to get players and trying to improve. We don't know what the salary cap's going to look like. So I, I really don't know. I don't expect a, a good portion of those UFAs to come back. And it all depends on how, how things play out if they get back on the ice. I, I think maybe there are some guys that the Panthers were thinking they weren't going to resign. Uh, maybe there are new, you know, other guys there now thinking they're not going to resign, and maybe that could change all over again. I, I think it's one of those deals where we just don't know right now. I mean, yeah. if we don't know how it's going to end. We don't know what the future holds. So to say, oh, for sure, this guy's coming right, back, yeah. this guy's not coming back, I, I don't think you could say that. And I think that's true just about all around the league. Yeah, I think that's because plenty fair. Only because, because you've got some guys, right? who were probably thinking, all right, I'm a UFA. I'm not even talking about with the Panthers. I'm a UFA. July 1, I'm finally getting paid. I've been looking forward to this. My, you know, I'm going to get that contract. And now they're not going to get that contract, yeah, some of those here. guys. you know. So, And like you said, those guys aren't exactly jumping off the page at you. This isn't Connor McDavid hitting the market. <laughs> you know. So if a guy like that hits the market, he's going to get paid. For sure. A lot of these guys are not going to get the contracts they thought, and some may end up staying home, staying where they're at, where they're comfortable, and, and you know, almost getting a bargain 
for the for their team, or they're going to say, I'll, "I'd rather play somewhere else for that money." So we'll just have to see. I mean, I know it's a long answer to a short question, <laughs> but we just don't know right now. So let's talk about the forwards, man. Jonathan Huberto, he's got to have a hundred point season coming, right? He's gotten so yeah. close. And I think it's almost, if you look at like 82 game sample sizes from that, like kind of bookend the, the summer, he's, he's got a hundred points in 82 games. It just never happens in a full season. Like I said, I, I think, what was it? It was 96 points. He came, he came damn close. Uh, but I think he's going to finally put one together. Well, last year, yeah, last year, Huberto had 92, which was a career high. And this year he ended up leading the Panthers and was well on his way to a hundred point season. I, I think that, yeah, I mean, you look at his production, especially with paired up with, with Sasha Barkov and, you know, mostly uh, Dadinov uh, on, on, on the, way, the right side. You know, that's a pretty, pretty good first line. But I think Huberto, even the few times he didn't play with Barkov, you know, he was, he was getting his points. So um, he has definitely turned into an offensive uh, producer and a point producer in this league. And, you know, at a pretty high level. So, yeah, I, I think we're definitely going to see 100 points. I think we'll see that from Barkoff. You know, last year was the first time the Panthers ever had two 90-point players. Um, I don't think they both would have gotten there this year because, you know, Barkoff had a little bit of a down year. Huberdo was definitely about to eclipse his, his highest point total. You know, if they get another 82 game, you know, next year, uh, maybe both will be at, be at the mark they were last year or exceed it. So like you said, Barkov, he's right up there with Huberto. Just seems more susceptible to cold streaks. And it sounded like you, you said it was pretty much just a down year. Did the cold streaks just get the, the better of him? I think he'd been dealing with something. I mean, even at the beginning of the year, he was playing with some kind of some kind of injury. It got better, was, you know, the Barkov of old. And then, then he got hurt uh, coming out of the All-Star break. Um, he got hit, jammed up hard February 1st in Montreal there was real concern from the Panthers that he was going to be out two months. And, and, you know, it turned out that the injury wasn't as severe as they thought he missed three games, but there was definitely something nagging at him. And I think if you look at the month of February, the month with the Panthers, I think only won four or five games. They were, they were really bad in February. A lot of that you could probably look at it at Barkov because he just wasn't the same player and he certainly wasn't producing the points. You know, the Panthers kind of, kind of fell off the map that month. Uh, Evgeny Dadnov, let's say he stays. Do you think he's going to slot right back into that top line and top power play for the most part? I know Quenville was kind of moving him up and down at even strength. Yeah, and I think that was just more of a trying to mix something up. I mean, that was, you know, a lot of that was was Barkov wasn't playing real well. And that was just, well, let's see if we can some, you know, could get some new energy into that top line. Um, and Dadnov's numbers, you know, in February weren't very good either. But yeah, I think if Dadnov, you know, is returns with the Panthers, yeah, I definitely see him back in that role because he was having a, you know, pretty good offensive season. And, and you know, the three years he's been back from the KHL with the Panthers, the numbers have been pretty good. Uh, 20 goals each season, I think, somewhere around there. Um, you know, he's, he's a productive player. He's a point producer and, uh, you know, kind of an underrated player that I don't think people around the league talk about much, but, but produces pretty high clip for the Panthers. I guess I got the same question about Mike Hoffman here, assuming he stays. I, I get this weird feeling that he's going to wind up in Long Island. I, I feel like they missed out on Panarin. I think he'd be a good fit. They'll, they'll pay for him, even though he's what, 31 years old, uh, just somebody that can finish alongside, uh, Barzell. I, to me, that's the perfect fit. Let's say he stays. Top six, top power play as well? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially with that that booming shot from the right circle. I For mean, sure. they, you know, that's that's something that the the Panthers haven't had. You know, that kind of you know big shot, and in, in, in the last two seasons, having Mike Hoffman with that uh, has been has been really nice, and he's he's really improved his his you know two hundred foot game. I've mentioned the month of February and how a lot of guys disappeared. Mike Hoffman really stood out as a guy who was trying to win every game, who was doing the little things, who was, you, you noticed him every time he was on the ice and it wasn't even around the net or anything. It was in the neutral zone, picking off the pass or making a hit or going after a loose puck. Mike Hoffman was all over the ice and I really thought Hoffman was going to be a guy the Panthers dealt at the deadline. And, you know, only, you know, knowing that he's a UFA and, and they may not be able to afford you know, bringing him back. And I think he played his way into staying because they realized, you know, this guy pretty much, you know, we, you know, we thought four or four or five wins was bad. We wouldn't have even had those had Mike Hoffman not been here. <laughs> so I think they realized the guy's a little more valuable than maybe they thought. And you look at his numbers and his numbers are terrific. Um, but he's definitely not a one-dimensional player. And if he comes back, yeah, I mean, you, you keep, you could, you, I mean, and that's the other thing that they, they have moved you know, when, when, when some players move down the lineup, they don't produce. Hoffman, wherever you put him, he put up points. I mean, if you put him on the fourth line, guess what? That fourth line was putting <laughs> up points. I mean, he, he just, he doesn't complain. They move him, they put him up. He doesn't care. You know, you don't take him off first power play, but they have slid him up and down the lineup. And every time he goes somewhere, he continues to, to, to put up numbers. His heat maps on the the power play, just of the whole Panthers, it's just like this bright red, white hot spot of where Mike Hoffman hangs out. So you can definitely see his impact on the power play. Eric Halla, it's just a recurring theme here. If if the Panthers extend him an offer and he does resign, do you think he's a middle six center power play two? I guess he would be there because even Trocek had trouble getting onto the top power play. I imagine Halla would have the same trouble. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, as long as as long as Barkov is there, and um, you know, I, I I would think that I, I think as soon as Halla got got to the Panthers in a little bit, he was with Florida before the hiatus. Um, he was playing some power play two time. He took he took uh, Trocheck's spot on you know on, on yeah. PP two. So yeah, I mean that's kind of where he figures out. And as far as where they play him in the lineup, you know, he was playing second and third line center. I would expect that's where he is. Um, the Panthers now have a little bit of a depth problem at the position after trading uh, uh, Trocheck, but they replaced him with Halla. They've got Walmart. Um, so they got two centers for one. We'll just have to wait and see because, again, Eric Hall is a guy, this will be his first year UFA, and I'm sure he thought that, you know, he'd be able to get something. And he may want to, you know, just go somewhere else. I don't know. He hasn't been in Florida all that long, so I don't know if there's any loyalty there. You know, we're going to have to wait and see where a lot of these guys end up and, and for what money. So I got a few defensemen that I'm curious about. And Keith Yandel is going to lead the way. Third pairing top power play. This is a trend that I'm I'm seeing a little bit more in the NHL. I saw it with um, Shane Gostasper. I'm a Flyers fan, so I saw that very closely while he was uh, on the top power play. So Eric Gustafs in the same deal in Chicago. Florida does the same with Yandel. Is this kind of just to curb uh, the aging that might come up or are they limiting his even strength minutes so that he can play that power play time? Yeah, a little bit. I, I think a lot of it is that, uh, you know, Gandal, you know, his defensive, you know, play is not what, you know, Ekblad's is or what uh, some of the other guys, Uyghur, I guess, uh, you know, I, I think he, you know, he played, 
you know, three, four, five, six, you know, he wasn't in the top pairing very much. And if he was, it was, you know, just to put him up there with Ekblad. So, but again, when, you know, same, same as when you look at Hoffman, uh, <laughs> whenever that uh, power play rolls out, there's Yandel because he's the guy that uh, quarterbacks it and he's the guy that gets her moving. So you talk about point production, you can't complain with what Keith Yandel oh and most of it coming from the power play too. Right. You don't see somebody like Ekblad making a push for that top power play spot anytime soon? Not as long as Yandel's there. You know, Yandel's they play the same. Ekblad's done a real good job. I mean, when he gets out there, you know, the second power play unit doesn't get a whole lot of ice time, mainly because of the puck possession, you know, the first unit gets. Um, so they're kind of, you know, coming back with 20 seconds left. So they don't get a <laughs> yeah. whole lot of time to work. But when, they, when they're down, when they're deep, yeah, Ekblad's done a real nice job. Uh, run the show. So I, I heard it kind of wedged in there that you like Mackenzie Weger's defensive game. Is he, do you believe that he's shoehorned into a top four spot or I had this question prepared already, but it sounds like you think he's cut out for it. I think, yeah, no, I think he's definitely cut out for a top four spot. I, I think uh, it just depends on the situation and, and how they're rolling guys out. He's played it all. You know, you, you, you put him at a bottom, you know, sometimes he's been with Yandel at five, six, sometimes he's been up and he, you know, he always seems to produce and do a pretty good job. You know, he was one of those young guys that, 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 you know, came up through the Panther system. So they, they like Mackenzie Weaver a lot. And I think he's shown them a lot and he's shown even, uh, you know, when Bob Bugner was here, he was getting a little bit of power play time himself, uh, mm -hmm. Which he hasn't really gotten because I think, uh, you know, Ekblad is just taking that power play two spot over. But I, I think there's a, uh, a lot of, a lot of faith in him through the Panther organization. And I think that, uh, they like him a lot. So I want to finish now on the prospects and, uh, I don't know how to say this lightly, but I, I'm not there in Florida and word around the water cooler is that there's kind of a developmental issue that goes on in Florida. And I'm curious, uh, what what kind of your your comment on that is? Do you believe there is one? Um, well, you know, I, I think if you look at the way this team's built, I mean, a lot of the guys that they've drafted that, that are on the team, they've drafted high um, and brought up. I think Josh Brown is a product of the system. Mackenzie Weger is a product of the system. I, I just think, you know, you look at the draft and, you know, after you get past the first couple rounds, you don't really hear from a whole lot of guys with Brown and Uyghur being the exception. So um, I don't know what the problem is. I think the whole lot of the developmental thing popped up when that story on uh, Henrik Borgstrom broke that he was thinking about staying in, in, in the KHL, you know, yeah. staying at home in Helsinki. I don't know if that's going to happen or whatever. I think that was, you know, probably that happened right in the middle of a pandemic or, you know, you figure a guy's in, in his hometown across the Atlantic ocean, maybe he wants to just stay home for a year. That would be, you know, I, I think it could be as simple as that. And, and, and now that things are starting to clear up a little, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, I think Panthers have tried to stock their AHL team with, with some players and, and they've brought up some players um, who have contributed, but as far as big time guys, they just haven't done it unless they're, you know, one of their first round picks. So I want to ask about Borgstrom. He's already got a good deal of NHL experience. He had 50 games, eight goals, 10 assists, 18 points. Does he fit that 2C role? They hope so. I know he hopes so. I mean, they, they you know, they gave him the 3C, you know, going into the season through all through training camp. He was, you know, it was, it was Barkov, Trocek, and, and then it was, uh, and then it was Borgstrom at three and things just didn't work out. I mean, he, he didn't, he didn't show Joel Quinville a whole lot. You know, I think after four or five games, uh, found himself a healthy scratch. 
the Panthers ran into a little dry spell and, and were able to sign Brian Boyle. And, and that was the end of Henrik Borgstrom in yeah. Florida for at least, you know, we didn't know how long he'd be gone. Turned out it was the rest of the year to, to the point of the break. You know, I, I think, yeah, I think there's an expectation that, yeah, he should be a top six center. There was an expectation that he would be a top nine center this year and, and, it, and it didn't work out, but he's still a young kid. He's still a, a very talented player. He's still a guy that, that they're counting on down the road. So some people have counted him out and I, and I don't think that's fair. I, I think he's still a young guy with tremendous upside. You know, we'll just have to wait and see how that works out. But you know, this year wasn't his year. That, that's definitely for sure. By no means is the, is the team writing him off. It almost feels like that is kind of happening with Owen Tippett. And again, I'm outside the the Florida bubble. Um, he didn't have a bad year. It was 40, 40 points in 46 games in the AHL. He feels like somebody that could fit that Hoffman role if Hoffman does walk. I think if he wouldn't have gotten hurt, you know, when mm-hmm. I say that they were looking at trading Hoffman at the deadline, I think that that was in mind that that tip could 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 jump in and, and maybe replace him there. Although there was an argument within the Panthers that you just don't replace the numbers that that Hoffman has put up with with a, a rookie who doesn't have a whole lot of NHL experience. But that said, Tippett got hurt. He got hurt in uh, late January and was out for the rest of the year. So that all went out the window. But I do believe that in sometime in February, had he not been injured, Owen Tippett would have been recalled by the Panthers. And, and then we could have a, you know, talk about what he did, but it, it didn't happen. So Owen Tippett will be in the Panthers next year okay. um, or even, even in a month or whenever. Um, I think okay. he'll be one of those guys. Uh, Dale Talon says he's healthy. So he should be one of those guys that gets called up and then we'll see what happens. The last guy I'm curious about is Gregory Denisenko. He has the great numbers at Worlds, but for the locomotive in the KHL, the numbers aren't so great. Is that just a result of him being utilized further down the lineup? Uh, I usually find myself going to like daily face-off or left-wing lock to find the line combinations, but the KHL doesn't have one. So I'm just curious if you heard anything. Just, you know, just coming from the from Panthers. I mean, I don't watch a whole lot of their games or any, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. But according to people I've talked to at the Panthers, that's what they, they really like. You know what Denisenko brings. You know, both from a puck puck guy, the the way he, you know, his speed, his playmaking ability, um, and they feel like he was buried. You know, on a, on a, in a fourth line role, didn't get a whole lot of offensive opportunities. He, he should be on this team next year as well. So we'll see how that goes. And I, you know, I don't want to throw a whole lot of uh, weighty expectations because, again, this will be his four, first North American season when he comes over to the Panthers. So a lot of stuff to deal with for him. But uh, you know, they seem excited about it. I mean, his numbers do not look good. You're right. But when he played with guys his own age, like you mentioned, the world championships and stuff, he dominated. And, and some would say, and you know, the best player on the ice kind of thing. So they're hoping that translates to the NHL. But uh, again, time will tell. Yeah, we are too, man. All right, George, that's everything I got for you, man. Uh, I want to say thank you so much for hopping on. And yeah. Best of luck with everything. I know Florida is, it's already an undercovered hub, you know, and I love pulling from everybody out there. And and like I said, already an undercovered market and being able to read stuff that you wrote was was a lot of fun. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. I'm going to keep covering them. So we'll see how it goes. I'm looking forward to it, man. Thanks for stopping by, man. Have a good night. All right. All right. Thanks for having me. 
right, guys. That was George Richards about the Florida Panthers. And next up, we got Arpon Basu about the Montreal Canadiens. Kind of my closet team. So I, I was especially excited to talk to Arpon because I have a lot of uh, just secret investments into Montreal. It's, I don't know, it's a fun town and I like their team. It's, it's kind of my Atlantic team. I know you guys don't care about what <laughs> I think about these teams just yet. So we're going to get into the interview right now. Uh, dig it. Here's Arpon Basu about the Montreal Canadiens. Hey, Arpon. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you, man? Doing all right. A little nervous, man. I, I love your work, so I'm going to get the, the fanboy stuff out of the way, <laughs> first of all. So Montreal, kind of like my closet team. I uh, don't really... <laughs> I, I'm a huge Flyers fan, but um, I fell in love with the city. My wife and I had been there a couple times. The city's great. We we saw... The Canadians played Columbus, and it was it was a ton of fun back when Panarin was still there, so we got to see all the... The big wigs and stuff. It's a great town. But we made yeah, the mistake yeah, of we went during I think it was January and February during each of oh our my trips. God. <laughs> yeah, man, don't do that. That's that's hockey's all we have at that time of year. Like that's, that's literally what fuels the city because there's nothing else good about it. But well the food. The food was great. The food's great. Yeah. Oh, the food yeah. is a lot of great places to eat. Yeah, the weather's a bummer, but you know, there's a reason there's a reason we endure it, you know, because other than the weather, it's a great place to live and visit especially visit. I mean, it's um we take the atmosphere at the arena a bit for granted because we're always there, you know. But like when you travel with the team and you go to other rinks and you kind of see it. So it's a good reminder. Are you from Montreal originally? Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Born and raised. Hell yeah. All right, so I'm going to do a little bit of welcoming here. Uh, Arpan Basu, welcome to the show, man. You guys, if you are looking for him, you can find him on Twitter at Arpan Basu. You guys can read his work on The Athletic, covering the Montreal Canadiens. If there's anything else you're working on, Arpan, feel free, man. No, that's about it, man. Just just trying to fill the pages of The Athletic these days is a bit of a challenge, so we're fully concentrated on that. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to hopefully pick your brain. I'm going to fire away. If you've ever seen Billy on the street, I'm just going to like – if you know, quizzed in the face, that's what I'm going to try and do here. All right, man. So I want to know who you have kind of leading the way next year as far as like offensive production in fantasy circles. That's what we're looking for. And uh, from the Habs, you got like a bunch of 50-point guys, and I'm wondering if anybody can break that. Yeah, it's a, that's a tricky one. Um, you know, I think the biggest question in Montreal for next season, let's say, would be basically, you know, we had Jonathan Drouin who had like this – you know, this sort of first quarter of the season where he was really good and then he got hurt. And so, and then he came back and he was kind of trying to play his way back through an injury. Then he hurt himself again and he, he was all banged up. So the the guy we saw in the first quarter of the season is the guy that, you know, that we've always wanted, that everyone's always wanted to see from Jonathan Drouin ever since he right. was taken third overall by the Tampa Bay Lightning. You know, something really clicked uh, with him in the last quarter of last season when he went totally dark, like just completely non-existent, absent, right while when the Canadians needed him most, while they're actually making a legitimate push for a playoff spot. But I kind of firmly believe that something did click in him. He's going to be a productive player next season. It's a bit of a gamble, like in fantasy terms. Like I don't know how high in the draft I would take a Jonathan Drouin, but I think he has a legitimate shot at leading this team in scoring next year. I really do. Oh, that's good to hear. I've always been high on his upside. I remember I was actually, it's funny. I was just going back and listening to like our, our first few episodes of, of doing this podcast, me and my co-host who couldn't make it tonight. And I remember uh, episode three, I think it was, was the Sergachev for Drouin. 
<laughs> trade. Yeah. I remember saying Montreal won this trade for right now, but Sergachev's probably going to wind up being the uh, the key piece there. The funny thing would be if the if would it be if Montreal dropped an offer sheet on Sergachev, then they'd have oh both of them. Yeah, that would. I'm yeah. really I'm really hoping for that. To, as a writer, I'm really hoping for that to happen, but we'll see. A little bit off base. Do you think Mark Bergevin goes a little rogue this year on anybody? Hard to say. I think he might have had uh, circumstances been normal. Uh, yeah. But with the kind of the uncertainty coming up, I don't know. I don't think he's going to, I don't think anyone's going to be all that aggressive, frankly. I mean, no one really knows what the financial landscape is going to look like. But but of all the GMs, almost all the GMs, but he has a good amount of cap space to work with. He has a lot of financial flexibility. So he could he could try and be aggressive. And, and this is also an environment under which, you know, other teams might be more reluctant to, to match a big offer sheet on a player because they don't know where the cap's going. And if any team has to be fearful of that, it's probably the Tampa Bay Lightning. So... Mm. We'll see. I don't know. I think the, the conditions might be ripe for him to do it. Yeah, 2020, the year of chaos, I think. It'll yes, fit right in. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So I want to touch on some of the top players in my mind here, starting off with Tatar. He's coming off the back of his best offensive career that he's had. We got 61 points out of him. Is this kind of where you place him year to year? Is this what he is going forward? Well, I think it's kind of hard to say that he would like hit another level at this point in his career. So I think he had a great season. He's been a, a very effective player from day one that he's been in Montreal and really barring uh, a few months in Las Vegas has been a very effective player his entire career. But I think he is kind of what he is. He had a great season this year, but you know, he's good for 25 goals, probably 35 assists or so. So yeah, around 60 points would probably be a reasonable expectation for him. Like he had 61 points, obviously, in this, with a suspended season. He had, you know, maybe an outside shot at getting to 70. I don't know if that's him, but I could see him being around the 55 to 60 point mark uh, next season again. Yeah, just about as consistent as they come. And that's what I find with a lot of these Montreal forwards, Brennan Gallagher being one of them as well. I feel like we can get 300 shots, 50 points, and a good amount of hits. Around the five hole, we kind of call him He's known as a bang daddy. So it's, it's just like this weird term that we give these guys that are, are good at hitting, shooting. They do a lot of stuff. Uh, he fills a bunch of categories for us. But uh, the hits kind of dried up this past year. I, and as somebody who is so steady, what did you see in his game that kind of led to a decline in hits? Was that something uh, he was asked not to do? I think it's just him getting smarter. You know, I think it's him focusing on playing the puck more than get, engaging in physical battles that he has, you know, probably as good a chance of losing as winning. So, um, you know, it's just him maturing and, 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 and continuing to learn how to play at his size. And so I think, yeah, I think that's, that's part of it. And also a big part of it is that that line of Tatar, Gallagher, and Deneau, uh have the puck a lot. And so it's hard to lay hits when you have the puck. So that's probably another factor in the fact their hits went down. Cause you know, if you look at all their shot rates and everything, they're hovering around 60%. So, um, when you're when you're cycling the puck in the offensive zone and sort of playing with it, uh, you're not you're not laying as many hits as as other as you would otherwise. If you had to take an over under bet on 275 shots, where would you land in a perfectly healthy season? That is, I would go over. And for 50 points, same deal. Yeah, oh, nice. I would go. I mean, perfectly. Yeah, if perfectly healthy and right. no. Yeah, if he's like barring any unforeseen circumstances, I think he'd be over on both of those. Excellent. All right, I want to move into a couple defensemen here, starting off with Jeff Petrie. And again, consistency seems to be the name of the game here for a lot of the Habs. Uh, Petrie, over the last three years, been floating right around that 45-point mark, 170 shots, great peripheral stats. Uh, and often, like us fantasy nerds, we kind of get 
um, selfishly excited when Weber goes down a little bit. Uh, I know it's like <laughs> probably the worst thing to say, but if anyone owns Petri, you're like, okay, cool. Uh, I get top yeah. power play now, but looking at the the timeshare on that power play, it looks like 50, 50, uh, even a little bit in Petrie's favor there. Um, is Petrie someone that we can call the top power play defenseman, or is that something that is owned by Weber? It is owned by Weber, but it's there is there's there's starting to be a realization with the Canadians coaching staff that that Shea Weber remains a, a, a lethal power play threat, but the Canadians power play itself uh, appears stagnant when when he's on the ice. Like there's everyone is so focused on trying to get him shots that they become pretty they become predictable. They become um, you know movements not and Petrie is just so much better at gaining the offensive zone. The one thing I would, if if I was, if I owned Petrie in fantasy, the one thing I would hope for is that the Canadians, it finally dawns on the Canadians to to deploy Weber as a forward on the power play. Like, just uh, say you are a forward, Petrie plays the back end and put Weber in the Ovechkin spot, which he played sometimes with the Canadians, but never, not often with Petrie, almost never with Petrie, and almost never with Nick Suzuki either, who is probably their most effective forward on the power play. So I think if they found a way to get those three guys on the ice together, with Petrie leading the breakout and setting up on the blue line um, and having Weber as the trigger man in that OV spot and Suzuki setting him up from across the ice, uh, that could be a really productive combination for Montreal, a power play that's been tr- like pretty awful for the last two years. So, um, But getting Petrie more minutes on the power play would probably help their co- case, so maybe they can come to that realization at some point. And almost we could guarantee that you actually have a number one power play unit that that does get a lion's share of of the time and i think it's stacking that unit would be pretty scary too yeah and it's something that they've always been fearful of doing just because they don't feel like that number one unit would be dominant enough or would be efficient enough but they've never really tried it so i would i would like to see them talk to shea weber and say listen for power play purposes you need to be a, a forward and act like it and play like it and see how it goes. And if it, it could it could turn into – and if Petrie becomes the other defenseman, then Petrie becomes a very attractive player in fantasy, I would think. So it's almost like the old adage, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But this is kind of the flip side. If it's not working, you got to yeah, fix it. that's it. And they've just been trying the same thing for so long and having it not work. And there's that whole thing about Einstein saying, and you know, insanity, the definition right? of insanity. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's pretty much what we have in Montreal. So talking about Shea Weber now, uh, he's 34, soon to be 35. He's playing monstrous minutes, and he's just an absolute unit when he when he is healthy. But therein is the caveat is when he's healthy. So last year we saw a career-ending injury that got flipped into, okay, just kidding, he's playing next week. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> so quickly that we were joking around here that he's probably a closet Wolverine made out of adamantium and all that. <laughs> so when is it safe to assume that the wheels are going to start to wobble here? Well, the injury in question, like, okay, so what happened with that is that, you know, he he hurt his ankle, but he hurt his ankle, the same ankle where he had like this kind of this weird, very rare fracture in his foot a couple of years ago that they misdiagnosed forever. And they took a foot specialist to really finally properly diagnose it and do the surgery and fix it. And so that created all sorts of doubt, not only in Shea Weber's mind, but in the Canadian's medical staff's mind into into that area of his of his body. And so since this injury, which was basically a, a straight up ankle sprain, happened in the same area, they want to make sure that they don't they weren't misdiagnosing it again, which is why he went to see the specialist, which is why that leaked out, uh, that he was going to see mm-hmm. the specialist. And if indeed it was related to that injury, it could very well have been career threatening. Uh, as oh. it turns out, it wasn't. And so it was just an ankle sprain and they could just treat it like an ankle sprain, at which point Shea Weber was like, well, if it's a sprained ankle, I'm playing. 
<laughs> so, so even though the Canadians were far out of the playoff picture at that point. So anyhow, it's, I think, I think the concerns over his health are, are, are justified, but I would also say that the, this one injury, this, this injury that we're talking to, I mean, it was, it was like, you know, he took a Jack Eichel slap shot off the foot and he played on it for two months afterwards. Mm. It wasn't a case of his body breaking down. You know, it's, 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 it's a, yeah. it's an injury yeah. that happens in hockey and it's just unfortunate. Now, having said that, that injury is a real thing. Like he, he, he's playing, you know, that, that area of his foot is clearly vulnerable. If they have to go run to the foot specialist every time something happens around there, then that's, that's problematic. But when he, he had, you know, he had some stretches this season where he wasn't as effective, but his first half of the season, like he was in the Norris conversation in the first half of the season. The question being now at that age, can he maintain it over a full 82 game schedule? Can the Canadians discipline themselves enough to play him being fully cognizant of his age and where he's reached in his career? Those are all valid questions that I don't really have answers for. Like, I, I think that the Canadians need to be real with him and be like, listen, we're going to dial it back because he doesn't take that very kindly. Like when yeah. he's told his minutes are going down, <laughs> he gets upset. So that's something that they're going to have to talk to him about. And they're going to have to find some sort of happy because I'm convinced that if Shea Weber played 19 minutes a game, he would be a very productive player and he would be great for fantasy. Uh, the question is, is that when when the coaches look, you know, when the coaches look down the bench and they see Shea Weber sitting there, they're very tempted to send him out there. And I think it's, yeah, I would be too. I think it's detrimental to to his overall productivity and level of play uh, over a long period of time. Like they need to take a lot of view on in his case. So we'll see if they can do that. Seems like the type of guy that would that would play sixty minutes if given the opportunity. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so next up, I got uh, Max Domi just exploded uh, for like 70 plus points. We saw career highs in 18, 19 for him in almost every counting set that we could do except for power play points. And we've we've spoke to that, that the power play is not, you know, it's it's not uh, it's not up there. It's it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we saw hits, shots, yeah. points, goals, assists, his shooting percentage even. And then this year kind of seemed like a down year in our expectations, but it seemed more in line with his career stats. So I'm, I'm curious, which one should we plan for? Which Domi do you believe in? I think it would be fair to find him somewhere in between the two. Like this year, there were a lot of, there were a lot of moving parts. He he never really had like an established line and, and he played long stretches with, you know, what could charitably be called two way forwards, but pretty much defensive type guys. And so I think, you know, they have a lot of things to figure out with Max Domi. Is he a center? Is he a winger? Um, you know, they have Nick Suzuki. They have Phil Deneau. They have Jesperi Kakaniemi, who they hope to play center. You know, they, the, that that right there, that's three guys. You can't have Max Domi centering your fourth line, and you can't have yeah. the two young guys centering the fourth line. So they need to figure something out. Max Domi's been very adamant about his desire to remain at center. So that's one thing they need to figure out. They also just need to figure out, well, first of all, his contract's up. He's an RFA, so they got to know how much they're going to pay him, how long they're going to pay him for, and, and frankly, if you might, if they, if they might be better served trading him. So there's a lot of there's a lot of question marks surrounding Domi. But as far as production goes, I think this year was was slightly down year. But even then, if that's a down year, then the Canes, you know, that that's, says a lot about shape, Max yeah. Domi. Yeah, like he's still a productive player with a lot of obstacles and a lot of challenges and a long a lot of long dry spells this season. So I think he learned a lot about being a, a sort of a, a targeted guy, if you will, like by the other team and defensively. And so, you know, I, I would say that he he's he's probably going to settle into a guy who was a little bit more productive than this year. I don't know if he's ever going to hit the 70-point range again, 
But again, like so many Montreal forwards, probably 60 to 65 <laughs> points is probably his sweet spot. You know, like it's, he's a, he's a hell of a player. He's like a dynamic offensive player. He's super fast, very intense, uh, has a, a good agitator side to him. You know, is not the greatest defensive player in the world, but offensively speaking, in terms of just dynamic speed and, and skill and forechecking, um, he's a really effective player. I really like his game a lot, but. Having, I mean, that's kind of why I think the Canadians might want to trade him because I think a lot of teams could use a player like Domi. So in a, in a more conducive offensive setting, he could probably hit those things. But I guess he wasn't playing with exactly that type of player this year. No, and if he's traded to a team where he gets appropriate wingers, I think he could. I think he could, he could hit that seventy mm-hmm. range again. Like it really depends on the way he's used, and 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 most importantly, if he's happy, if he's happy in the role that he's being used in. Because, uh, you know, if Domi's not happy with his usage, it's not hard to tell. <laughs> it, becomes very, it becomes very obviously very quickly. So I got a few more guys I, I want to get to here. We already spoke on Jonathan Druin, so I want to skip ahead to Philip Dano. And as Philadelphia fans, we're kind of very well versed in having somebody that's underrated as a two-way center. And Philip Dano kind of fits that mold. Can Dano breach the 60-point mark? Do you think that's kind of in his wheelhouse? Well, I assume you're referring to Sean Couturier, and I don't think yes. there's there's a lot of Sean Couturier in Phil Deneau. I mean, they are they were similarly underrated, but Sean Couturier is a far superior offensive player than Phil Deneau is. I mean, it's but having said that, Phil like Deneau is I think in an ideal world where the Canadians were were contenders, um, he would probably be a third line center for them. Um, like an elite, elite third line center, <laughs> like wow. a really, really one of the best in the league. Uh, as it is, he's a first line center. He's he's capable offensively, but his main role on that line is defensive, and and he expends a lot of energy in his own end, getting the puck back and and making sure it moves to the offensive zone. He's actually a decent transition player as well, but in the offensive zone, he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the most finish in the world. He's not he's not some sort of clairvoyant play, playmaker or anything. He's he's he facilitates. You know, he's he's able to play in the offensive zone and make sure the puck continues to move. But, you know, the Canadians, when that line is on the ice, are far better off when it's on Thomas Tatar's stick and when and Tatar is sending it towards the net for Brendan Gallagher to go pick up pick up the loose change in the garbage around there. So it's hard to get – like, Phil Deneau on that line, the way that line is used for Montreal right now would be in the 50-point range as far as product, production is concerned, I would think. Um, but the thing is, is that – at some point, I think everyone's aware that one of you know one of Suzuki or Kakaniemi are going to take that spot. And when he's not playing, when he's not playing with those wingers, I can't. I have trouble seeing him putting up numbers like that well, if he's fair. playing with sort of different wingers. You know. So you commented on Nick Suzuki. I'm I'm wondering what you see as his ceiling. This was an amazing year for him. Well, his his long term ceiling is really high. You know, I think he could be a, a 70 to 80 point guy at some point. Um, will that be next year? Probably not. Yeah. But you know, he's already shown that he's he's incredibly creative and incredibly deceptive on the power play. He he is, I, I believe, was their best power play forward, largely because Joyne was hurt up most of the year. Like he's Joyne's obviously excellent on the power play, but Suzuki really took charge of the second unit, if you will. And I mean, honestly, like I started referring to the units as the Weber unit and the Suzuki unit, and mm. the Suzuki unit was the better the, was the better of the two units, and so. Um, you know, he's got a ton of maturity, both, you know, in his personality and in his game. Um, the defensive side of the game doesn't elude him. He's still getting used to the NHL, I guess, uh, the NHL needs defensively, but he's, he's, he's rarely completely out of position. He's just like a step behind in getting to position, which will come, 
uh, with with experience. But I think he's he has the potential to be a super productive center. And I honestly think he's got the inside track on being the future number one center of the team, uh, considering you know the difficult season yes Braycock Kaniemi had this right. year. But he's he's a really special player and one who's really fun to watch like once or twice a game at least he does something that really makes you take notice he's 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 incredibly creative and has just a great hockey imagination so i don't want to steal too much more of your time we got three prospects i want to touch on and the first is going to be alexander romanov do you think we're going to see him this year and if so is he going to have a strong impact we are for sure going to see him you know uh, next season for sure um i think he's basically penciled into a third line role next year he would have to play himself out of that. And it's possible he does, you know, it's, he will start the season in Montreal. I can almost guarantee it. The question is, can he handle it? And if he can't, then he might go up down to Laval. But if he shows that he can not only handle it, but he's thriving in it, there, there is room for him to move up on that left side. The left side of the Montreal defense is, is very weak. Like Mm -hmm. it it is the weakest point of the team. And so he's going to be stepping into the third pair on the second, on, on the left side, Ben Sherratt, you know, was playing with Weber this season, sort of up and down in that sense. Like they started really well and Weber started producing like a maniac, um, largely because Ben Sherratt was there. And so Weber felt free to kind of jump into the rush a little bit more than he usually does. I don't know if he's really the ideal partner for Weber in the long term. And, and Romanov, actually, if, if he is able to adapt that would be a job that would fit perfectly for him because the Canadians love putting, you know, I, just, I don't know if you remember like Victor Mete a few years ago when he was, when he made it at a junior played with Shea Weber and, and his most frequent partner in this NHL career has been Shea Weber. So I could see them doing that at some point, in which case Romanov starts to become an interesting player fantasy wise, because if he does show that a, he belongs in the NHL and B, he deserves a bigger role. I could totally see them putting Romanov with Weber just to mentor him and and show him the ropes and and teach him how to play in the NHL. And if that happens, then you might you might get some points out of him because you'll probably be playing with some good forwards up front, and uh, and he'll be playing with you know Weber's booming shot. And sometimes that's just a pass like <laughs> point to point, and you wind up with an assist. You know, so um, so we'll see. I don't think I would I don't think I would risk it though. I mean, I, I think chances are pretty good that Romanov is going to be a pretty low impact fantasy guy next year. So the next one is Cole Caulfield. I remember exactly where I was standing, exactly what I felt when uh, Philadelphia took Cam York. Uh-huh. But uh, I can't say I'm too disappointed with Cam York. But I'm curious as to a timeline that you imagine for Cole Caulfield here. It's actually funny you say that because if 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 the Flyers had taken someone other than York or Caulfield, I'm not sure who the Canadians would have taken. I know that they were <laughs> they were very high on Cam York, like really really high. So I think. That's like if they had, you know, if if the Flyers had taken like Peyton Krebs, let's say, in that draft, I have no idea what the Canadians would have done. But anyhow, all that being, the Flyers made that decision easy for them. I don't. I think Caulfield, you know, right now the plan is for him to obviously go back to the University of Wisconsin. I don't know what this whole pandemic is gonna, how that's gonna change that plan. Like if the if the college season next year gets gets jeopardized or gets delayed. Oh, yeah. You know, maybe Caulfield decides to leave school and and turn pro, but there might not be the AHL either. And uh, but if there's the OHL is playing, maybe he decides to go play like he the Sioux Greyhounds always writes in the in the OHL. In any case, at the end of next season, whenever that is or however form that takes, it was always the expectation that he would that he would finish his season at Wisconsin and sign with the Canadians immediately. You know, obviously you wouldn't draft him in fantasy to get like a month of, of Cole Caulfield. But I mean, by, <laughs> yeah. by the season after, I would expect him to be a full-time player in Montreal. I think that's the plan. It's just it's up to Caulfield to, to make that plan happen. 
So the last guy I have here is Caden Primo, and I'm wondering if he's the answer for the backup and if if there's an ETA on him. Uh, I don't I don't think the Canadians consider him the answer necessarily right now. I think they have their plan is to sign someone off this massive pool of goalies available yeah, this offseason um, and and get pay a fair amount, decent amount of money to get like a one year deal with a really good backup and then have Caden Primo come in the next season. So that would be, geez, what are we talking like 21, 22? I don't I don't even know what yeah. years we should be talking about anymore, <laughs> but um, whatever, not next season, but the season after would probably be Caden Primo's year. So next season, I would expect him to get full number one goalie duty in Laval in the AHL and then and then graduate to the backup position. Not only the backup position for Carey Price, but by that point, Carey Price will be 36, I want to say, off the top of my head. And so it would be a perfect kind of platoon situation where you could bring Primo in and have like Price play like 50 games and have Primo play 32 or whatever. So... We'll see how that goes, but I don't think I don't think next season is is when the Canadians plan on bringing Primo to the NHL. Even though he had a great year in the AHL, but I think they'd like to see him do it again. Well, I tell you what, man. Thank you so much for hanging out. Thanks for carving some time out for me. And uh, one more time, you guys can find Arpon on Twitter at Arpon Basu. You guys can read his work on the Athletic. And thanks for stopping by, brother. Thank you so much. All right, it's my pleasure, man. Take care. All right, guys, that was our spot on the Montreal Canadiens. Next up, we got Lance Lazowski talking about the Buffalo Sabres. Last but not least, that's what we got for today. So let's get going with the interview with Lance here. Hey there, how's it going? It's going well, man. How are you today? Doing well, doing well. Sorry about the delay. My editor just called me. Hey, man, it's fair enough. So what I got planned today is uh, I'm hoping to pick your brain about a bunch of Sabres topics. And I know we're, we're on a time crunch, so I'm going to try and blast them as fast as I can. But everybody that's listening, we're joined with Lance Lazowski. You guys can find him on Twitter at L Lazowski, the Buffalo News beat writer. And I'm sure you guys have that online and stuff. But if there's anything else you're working on, man, feel free to plug away. All right. Yeah, that's probably it right now. The stuff that I am working on, I, I'm not ready to, to talk about it quite <laughs> How's everything going? Where are you where are you located at? I'm near Philly, so I'm a Flyers fan. That's full disclosure. Uh, but we're just doing like a like a <laughs> we're doing. No, like that's a, fine. No, I I grew up, I grew up in Pittsburgh, like in the Pittsburgh area. Oh, so okay. I'm not is that where your heart is? Um, I'll, I can edit this I don't out, know, man. If it's incriminating. No, like the, like honestly, like on like I'm not being totally candid with you. Like just this job makes it really difficult to be a fan of a lot of sports like I used to cover I covered baseball before so that's sort of weird I've been around the NFL before so really like being an NFL fan is kind of weird now like in the NHL obviously I I kind of strip myself of all allegiances which isn't fun by the way (laughs) well as a fantasy fan that's where our allegiances lie we're kind of like that's kind of how I am yeah fantasy like I only play fantasy football but that's like that's the only team that I really have a commitment to is my yeah. fantasy football. Yeah, team. you know what I'm saying. So it's like I, I love a lot of teams, and I've had chances to own like Jack Eichel on my team, Victor Olofsson, uh, Jeff Skinner back in the day. And these are guys I want to touch on. So if you don't mind, I'm yeah. gonna start off just with the Sabers yeah. as, as a whole. Uh, they had their fair share of like hot starts and stuff, and I'm just wondering uh, after watching the the wheels kind of fall off after these long stretches, whether it's 20 games, 10 games, whatever. What can be done internally to keep these hot stretches from being so volatile? 
I think part of it, I mean, we saw the last two seasons in particular, the, the winning, what they had a wit, like a really nice stretch this past October. They had a really good stretch, a 10 game win streak in November, 2018, but oh, we see it. I mean, just watching the game of hockey doesn't, you could see that winning games in October or November is far different than February and March when you're actually pushing for a playoff spot, yeah. the intensity of the game, how tight it, it just gets much more, much tighter. And as a young team, they're learning to sort of handle just the ebbs and flows of the season. And I think part of it is this group, the core players, Eichel, Skinner, Ristolainen, Ryan, none of those guys have ever been in the playoffs. So they're still sort of learning how to win those games. Plus you've got guys like Darlene, Henry Yokiharu, Victor Olsen. So this group, it's really going to be about learning, um, learning how to play in those tight games, which I think they made a lot of progress in this season. And, uh, the emotions of the game. And that's why they hired Ralph Kruger to help this team manage its emotions. And we saw fewer really emotional swings. The Sabres were able to put a stop to any really negative stretches a little bit quicker than they were previously, but still two, six game win it losing streaks that sank their season. And it's something that Kruger is going to have to continue to address. Yeah. The top end talent that you, you spoke about on paper, they are a team that could win and the team that could definitely compete it seems like there's almost a depth issue as soon as that top line gets off the ice. I see a lot on Twitter that are like, okay, with Eichel, without Eichel, and it's just two different teams. Do you see that as like a a big issue, the depth? Yes, and it all started when they traded Ryan O'Reilly. I mean, let's face (laughs) it. Um, The the great teams of the NHL, I don't care what your systems are, what sort of style of play you have, they're deep down the middle. You look at every playoff team, you you look at the Bruins, you look at the Blues, you look at the Penguins. All these teams have great center depth, and the Sabres, I think it was a complete miscalculation to trade Ryan O'Reilly for the return that they did. And I know now they're counting on Casey Middlestad, counting on Dylan Cousins, but you know when you don't have even a legitimate second or third line center, which they didn't this season, you're not going to maximize the potential of the, the wingers on your team. So you look at Connor Sherry, you look at Jimmy Vesey, these are two very smart acquisitions, at least in my opinion, that Botterill's made since he got here, but those guys aren't scoring goals if you can't get anybody who can give them the puck or anybody who can win face-offs. So that's the issue here. It's getting legitimate centers. And, you know, I think we're going to see again next season, the Sabres are going to try to rely on middle stat and cousins. And I really don't know what sort of results those are going to produce, but maybe that allows Marcus Johansson to move to the wing, which he's much better at. And maybe Dylan Cousins is actually ready to step in and be an NHL player. That's the gamble that Jason Botterill might be taking. So I want to talk about Cousins here. Do you see him as a 2C or do you see him maybe swinging to the wing in the, in the Reinhardt spot even on top? Uh, I think I don't see Sam Reinhardt ever moving back to center. He's not comfortable there. He's proven to be a very effective wing in this league and sort of can drive play from the wing. What I think they're going to do is you're going to see Cousins either – at second line center or potentially you mentioned at second line right wing because this team is thin on the right side maybe that helps him sort of ease into the the speed of the NHL and just the systems I mean it's going to be a little bit of adjustment switching into an NHL system especially the one that Kruger plays which is so heavy on you know your center has to be very defensively responsible and you know we'll see if, if Cousins is ready for that but he's going to be given every opportunity to earn a prominent role once camp actually starts. So going back to this, the top end talent here, Jack Eichel, there's just been, uh, I don't know if it's unjustified because like I said, I'm in the Philadelphia bubble and a lot of buzz (laughs) about his growing frustrations, trade rumors and stuff like that. Is there any real credence to his, to the trade rumors? Is that something that they could potentially explore? 
Absolutely no. <laughs> I didn't think so. And I, know, and I know it's it's so easy. And I saw a lot of different fan bases across the league get super excited because they they really like looked back at what happened with Ryan O'Reilly. Oh, O'Reilly's the last guy who said something along these lines, and he was traded. Very different circumstances. I wasn't. I think anybody who's like really spent time around Jack Eichel wasn't surprised at all that he said what he said. It was an expression of frustration. You know what? If he didn't say it, I would think there would be an issue. Right? It's a guy that wants to win. He wants to hold his teammates accountable and has really become the leader that the Sabres have needed for years now. They really haven't had that leadership. And uh, he he wants to win a Stanley Cup, right? And he yeah. gave it everything he had every night this season. And I think the frustration really started him out during the second half when He's putting his team on his back a lot of these nights, and they still can't score goals. Yeah, he's got plenty to be frustrated about. I was reading um, an article by your colleague, Mike Harrington. He's got three coaches, no playoff experience. And like you said, he's putting it all on himself, and he's, he's going out there giving it his all, and he wants to be there. Going back to like trade rumors now, is Risto somebody that you see, Ristolainen, is that something that's more realistic? I think it's as realistic now as it was a year ago. It really has to be the right the right acquisition for Jason Botterill. I think that he set the price very high last summer because he realizes that there is a lot of potential Ristolainen despite a lot of the, uh, you know, the analytics paint a very ugly picture. Yeah. Set the price high. Didn't want to get raw, you know, didn't want to lose a trade because if you lose that trade, that's a pretty devastating one to lose. So I think if it's the right price, if it's a second line center, if it's pretty much any top six forward at this point, who, who's capable of scoring 25 goals. Yes. They would consider doing it, but I think they're for perfectly fine keeping Ristolainen. The contract makes a lot of sense. He's he's making less than $6 million a year, two more years on the, the contract, plays a ton of minutes, a perfect fit for the, the system that Ralph Kruger plays. And the Sabres really don't have another defenseman to to take on Ristolainen's role. Darlene's not ready to face you know the top lines of another team. Henry Okiharu isn't ready yet. And they really don't have that physical element on their team like they do with Ristolainen. It's, it would be a tough one. He's a tough player to part with, despite what I, um, a lot of the uh, a lot of Sabres Twitter or the analytics or anybody in that crowd really think. So I want to talk about two guys here that um, can be kind of interchanged on that top line. It's Victor Olofsson and Jeff Skinner, and there's two really different stories that go along with each. Olofsson, he's great next to Eichel, and he's good on his own. Uh, so I'm curious, what do you see as a ceiling, and what do you see as his role next year? Honestly, I think a ceiling is a 35 to 40 goal score. Um, we saw late in the season, and this is really promising for the Sabres, that Olsen went down, he played with Marcus Johansson and Dominic Mood, and they were really good. That was the first time in two seasons the Sabres had ever pieced together really a consistent second line, a second line that would be able to produce the type of offense they need to produce. Now, there were some defensive inefficiencies, some some weaknesses there that would need to be cleaned up, but it went. it really showed us that Olsen is not dependent on Jack Eichel. Really a dynamic two-way player. I'm curious what his contract will look like. He's a pending RFA. But, again, this is a guy that there's a very, very high ceiling there. And it's almost the flip side with Skinner. We saw him with Eichel. He uh, went on just an absolute tear. And then away from Eichel, the $9 million starts to really weigh way down a little bit and from an outsider's point of view it seems like he's boomer bust by that Eichel line what do you think else played into his struggle this year do you think they could go with Eichel and Skinner and then Olafson, since he is kind of self-sufficient on that second line do you think that would be the top six uh it, it's it's a good question I think with I think a lot that happened with Jeff Skinner this year you have the injury an inability to, to finish chances and again this team didn't have a second line center 
And, uh, you know, you need somebody, him to be able to play with somebody. They had Marcus Johansson playing center with Skinner. Johansson didn't play center in years. So I really wouldn't worry about Skinner's production long-term. This is a guy who produced the first several years of his career without Jack Eichel. Now, when it comes to the, to the lineup, I don't see him playing with Eichel off the jump next year. There, I would Honestly, if, if, if I were to guess right now, I would pencil in Jeff Skinner next to possibly Dylan Cousins in a different right wing, maybe Dominic Cahoon. They're going to try to – they do not want to have Skinner and Eichel on the same line. That's pretty – that's pretty clear right now. And Kruger is a huge fan. He really loves Olofsson, Eichel, and Reinhardt as his top pairing. Top because answer, that, yeah. they're, very, they're very savvy defensively. And they've got great chemistry. And, and why mess with that? And Skinner's just not consistent enough defensively to be taking on those top, those top matchups right now. His, his defensive game just slips away too much. So they're going to try to really mess with some matchups. And again, if this team can acquire a, a proven second line center, then that's who Skinner will probably end up playing. Fair enough. I want to comment now on the goalies. After reading your article on Hutton's vision disorder or his issues this year, it does seem to shed some light on what happened this season with him. And you said that Carter feels most comfortable in a starting role, but Olmar kind of carved out that spot for himself there. So what do you see the crease looking like it next year? I think Allmark goes into camp as the starter. He's going to have every opportunity to to really be the guy, um, which is what the Sabres have wanted for him the last couple of years. I mean, they tried to to shove Allmark into the starting role in eighteen nineteen. He wasn't he wasn't ready for it. He was actually ready for it this past season. So his production was mostly in a two month span. You know, before he really wasn't the starter. He kind of struggled in November. The numbers weren't great. So the, the jury is still very much out for him. He's a pending RFA. This is a chance for him to really earn that long-term contract and really cement himself as their, as their number one guy. But if Hutton's able to, you know, if he's able to really push and take the starting job, maybe that's a good thing. But again, I think the Sabres goaltending situation is much stronger now than it was you know, before the 18-19 season, which is a good thing. Plus they have prospects in the pipeline. If, oh, yeah. You know, if Hutton's game doesn't become more consistent, because that's the thing. I mean, Hutton's shown he can win, you know, a bulk of five starts, but the consistency has been an issue. And although he pointed out and revealed his medical diagnosis, he also mentioned, I need to be better about consistency. Yeah, they got, what, Eric Portillo and Uka Pekalukanen kind of waiting in the wings, so they do have a wealth of talent to to replace them. Do you see almost a timeline for these guys? Is Portillo somebody that's going to be overshadowed by UPL? Portillo is a guy we might not see for four years, to be honest with you. Mm. He, um, so he played in Dubuque this year. He's going to Michigan in the fall. And he might be a guy who plays three or four years at the University of Michigan to really hone his game. Now, of course, if he has a really another strong season, that could speed up the timeline a little bit. But we've seen how volatile goalies' developments are. You can have a really what looks like a can't-miss prospect, and all of a sudden he has a horrible season, whether that be in college, USHL, at any level. Uh, and Uko Pekalukunen's timeline got pushed back because of hip surgery. You know, he did, did extremely well in the ECHL this year, but really struggled once the speed of the game went up in the AHL. So right now they've got they've got what they have in the <laughs> NHL, and they have Jonas Johan jo- Jonas Johansson who uh, got some playing time when Allmark went down with injury and is a prospect they like. So the last uh, NHL skater that I want to talk about is Rasmus Dahlin. He's already making a huge impact and we are waiting on these. We're hearing like 80 point ceiling, 90 point ceiling. And I'm just wondering what needs to happen for Dahlin to really explode here. To be more proficient at five on five. I mean, that's the thing. Power play. There's no question that he is already an elite 
an elite defenseman on the power play. There's no question about it, the way that he's able to quarterback their top unit. But it's five on five. It's really rounding out his defensive game and because he just isn't strong enough yet without the puck. Um, and if you're not good enough defensively, you're going to be chasing the game a little bit too much, especially when you're playing against some of the elite teams in the league. So as soon as he rounds out his defensive game, which he took significant strides with this season and starts to earn more minutes, right? I mean, Darlene isn't that 23-minute-a-game guy quite yet. Once he gets to that point, I think that's when you're going to see him take off. And I don't know if it's going to be this year, this coming season. Well, I guess it'll be next season since we're still waiting on the playoffs. Yeah, right. But it's it's going to be in the near future. And that's the guy that once he's ready, that's when they're going to be feel much more comfortable parting with a guy like Bristolainen. So I got one more question before I get to, um, we already touched on Ukapeka Lukanen and Portillo, but I have two more prospects that I'm curious about. But before that, I want to talk about the cap. And then looking on cap friendly, out of 13 signed forwards, only four have contracts going into next year. And among the notables for next year, you got Reinhardt, Olafson, Cahoon, Simmons. And then on defense, Montour and Lawrence Pilot are up. How do you kind of see them dancing around this? And who are they really putting at the top of the priority list there? Cahoon and Olson, are, those are layups. Those, those guys are going to be back. They're part of the, the Sabres' long-term plans. Simmons is an interesting one. I know that he was interested in coming back before the season uh, was put on pause. You know, I don't know what the Sabres really – are really interested in bringing him back. He wasn't all that great defensively during his time in Buffalo. I know it was only seven games, but and the foot speed wasn't, I think, a very strong fit. The Sabres need to get faster, especially in that middle six. I don't know if Simmons really, really fits the bill for what this team needs. That said, I wouldn't be surprised at all. You know, for the right price, he comes back because of the, the physicality and the leadership he would bring. Uh, the rest of the guys, the only other free agent that I think is really going to be a priority is Johan Larson. I think Larson is – he was a very good fourth-line center this season, very good defensively. I think that it, it would be very easy to undervalue a player like that and, and try to try to replace him with somebody like Curtis Lazar or to try to sign some fringe NHL or to try to sign your fourth line. But that's a move that I think the Sabres would regret. They, are, they already don't have enough set depth down the middle, so Larson should be a priority. Jurgensen's, I don't see him coming back. I think he, he outpriced himself. It wouldn't shock me at all if he ends up in Pittsburgh. Uh, Montour Security, a, a very interesting one. Uh, pending RFA, a guy who really has like 50-point potential, very skilled offensively, was a perfect fit for Phil Housley's system when the Sabres acquired him in February 2019 at the deadline. Not a fit for what Kruger wants to do. Kruger doesn't like, doesn't like his defenseman carrying the puck past the blue line and joining the rush. He wants to play more of a conservative style on the back end. So you're sort of handcuffing Montour. You're not maximizing his value. I think that Montour is a, another guy you're probably going to hear in trade talks once uh, the offseason really starts to ramp up. Hmm. All right, so I guess looking at the prospects I was curious on, we already touched on Cousins a little bit, but Rasmus Asplund and then Casey Middlestad. I'm not sure what to call him. A bit of a weird career as far as like, is he NHL? Is he still a prospect? What's going on there? As far as like Asplund and Middlestad, what are your expectations for these guys going forward? Starting with Asplund, he's a curious case because I think he's very good on the penalty kill um, and the Sabres definitely need help there. But I, don't, I just don't see a lot of upside offensively. He hasn't scored goals at any level. Doesn't really create in the offensive zone. Maybe that's a part of his game that will really round up as, as he gets another, another year of experience in North America. But I just don't see much of a ceiling there um, with the puck. And let's face it, I mean, you got to score goals in this league to stick around. Yeah. Especially, I mean, the Sabres need more production from their bottom six. 
I think it might be a regrettable move to try to replace a guy like Jurgensen with Asplund, who doesn't bring physicality or really um, a lot of skill in the offensive zone. So I, I think he's a guy for Rochester. I don't really know how much upside he has. I hope he proves me wrong because he's a really great guy. And uh, I really like the prospect. I like some of the intangibles there. Just I think he needs to round out his game. In terms of Middlestead, everything that's gone out at Middlestead over the past couple of years, the Sabres have themselves to blame. They rushed him to the NHL. He wasn't even very good at University of Minnesota. Didn't really produce very much. Um, so there should have been some red flags there in terms of his development. And instead of putting him in Rochester, which is what they should have done, they rushed him to the NHL in 2018-19 because they traded Ryan O'Reilly. And then Patrick Berglund leads the team. So who's going to be your second-line center? And Casey Middlestad was showed flashes at times. The skill is there. I'm not going to call him a bust yet because the kid is 21 years old. I think calling any 21-year-old a bust is completely irresponsible. Yeah, but uh, there's a lot to like there. He took he took some significant strides defensively and in the face-off circle when he went back down to Rochester this season. So this is a big summer for him, though. It's a big summer for him. And He's one of those players that if he doesn't really pan out, Jason Botterill's crowd, that, that's going to be one of the indictments against Jason Botterill you missed on your first your first draft pick and a, a really important one. A little bit of backpedaling, just getting him into Rochester now, I think. I think it's tough. I think they tried to have him learn on the job in the NHL. And in hindsight, they probably should have done that on the wing and not made him be the center. Um, a lot of guys have done that. It's not It's not on unnatural to have a guy play wing and sort of ease him into that to playing down the middle of the ice which is a, huge resp- a huge responsibility and now it's it's really just building back the confidence and we saw this with Tage Thompson as well the Sabres again rushed the prospect to the NHL loses confidence and I think another part of this is these kids not only are they struggling in their own individual games they're doing that in a locker room that's been a pretty negative atmosphere I mean we've heard guys who leave Buffalo who go who go to other teams and tell the media the room was uncomfortable it's just a lot of negativity you hear those comments and now as a 21 year old and you're already lacking confidence I can't imagine what that would be like as a young player it can't be easy and you sort of hear a lot of relief in these guys voices when they go down to Rochester they're in that really positive environment and they're allowed to make mistakes without, you know, maybe being afraid that it's going to lead to a benching or being, you know, a game in the press box. Yeah, NHL is not a developmental league. I'll say that much. No, it's not. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> so that's all I got for you, Lance. Thank you so much for carving some time out today. I appreciate it. Anytime, man. Anytime. So one more time, you guys can find Lance on Twitter at L. Lazowski, and you guys can read his work at the Buffalo News online, I would guess, unless you're in the Buffalo area. So one more time, yeah, man. Thank you so much, and uh, I hope you have a good rest of the day, bud. Thanks, you too. Take care. All right, guys, thanks for listening to these interviews about uh, Florida, Buffalo, and Montreal. We're going to catch you guys later on in the week. We got Ottawa and Detroit coming up. We're going to have Anzar Khan talking about Detroit, and we're going to have someone. I'm still I'm still hunting for somebody from Ottawa, so uh, I hope that we can get somebody for you guys. So that's the idea. So I will be diligently working on lining somebody up, and I hope you guys, you know, stop by, say hi. You guys can find me on Twitter at FHF Hockey. You guys can find me lurking in the Discord. And until next time, guys, we'll see you later. I love you.